Our reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and extending to Genesis chapter 6, all the way to verse 8. This is a reading of God's holy and infallible word. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Seth were 912 years and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahaliel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahaliel 840 years and had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahaliel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahaliel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters, and thus all the days of Mahaliel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Now Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had, all, had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying... Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bore children to them. 
And these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, having heard your word now read in the presence of your people, we with anticipation sit before this word for you to speak into our hearts through the power of your spirit, the truths that you would have us know this day, truths regarding your glory, your grace, truths regarding your character, your purposes and intentions. Father, we have come here for no other purpose than to know you, to glorify you, to be shaped after your image, and to follow in the way of your call. Come and see our need of you. Come and meet us in the midst of that need. Come most of all, and now glorify yourself in our midst as we give attention to this, your word. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. So here we are, friends. Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 8. The passages that you have skipped over all of your life in the reading of the book of Genesis. These are the clean sections in the pages of your Bible. Very few notes, no coffee stains in Genesis 5 and Genesis 6. Very few of us have spent time in these long genealogies. And if for no other reason we haven't figured out how to say most of the words of the names of the people who are written upon these pages. And yet the Bible, and specifically the book of Genesis, spends a tremendous amount of time giving to us lineage, lists of names, families, and bloodlines. And that's instructive to us. The Lord, in His inscrutable and all-wise plan, has decided devote a sizable portion of his scriptures to the listing of almost unpronounceable names. And that's instructive to us. This is very important that we would know Genesis chapter 5 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 6. It's names, it's, it's ages, it's birth dates, it's it's death dates, it's children and the spreading of the lineage. As we see at the opening verses of Genesis chapter 5, the line of Seth coming down from his father, the book of Adam. Now Jesus tells us in the New Testament in a parable with regarding the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is like 
It's like a field, a field where seeds are planted, where the farmer, the gardener has come and he has, he has sown a harvest of wheat. He's planted that weed and the weeds begin to sprout out through the ground and he's beginning to see you know, the early growth of the crop in which he has invested. But an enemy of the kingdom of God has crept in and in the cover of darkness has spread another kind of seed, the seed of tares. And those tares grow right beside that wheat that the, the gardener has grown. And the Lord says to those who are concerned, the harvesters, that alongside this wheat are these weeds, these tares that would seek to choke out the growth of the weed of the kingdom of God. He's concerned, these harvesters, that the health of the wheat would, would be compromised. But God says, listen, sometimes very difficult to distinguish between the wheat and the tares. Instead, let them grow up together. Because all in due time it will be revealed to which is the true fruit of the kingdom of God and to which is the weed of the tare. Now if I might translate Jesus' parable to Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 6 as we have been watching since the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 two seeds, two kinds of seeds. A godly seed, a promised seed, a seed of the woman that will come and crush the head of the serpent. But we've also been told that there is going to be a seed of the serpent that is going to be spread as it were. In and around the kingdom of God, these lines that are going to run up through the pages of Genesis, indeed through the unfolding of the whole of the New Testament. And these two seeds are, as it were, two bloodlines, two genealogies. One genealogy, which we saw last week as we looked at the genealogy of Cain, the seed of the serpent. And this week, genealogy, Genesis chapter 5, of Seth, the godly seed, the chosen seed, the promised seed, the seed of the woman, from which the line of the next patriarch will come who's named at the end of Genesis chapter 5, this Noah. There's a design in these genealogies, intending for us to pay attention to the line, the flow, the orchestrating of the plan of the generations of God and the generations of man. These two seeds growing up, as it were, throughout the pages of Scripture. Now, in the book of Genesis specifically, this is what we might refer to as seed theology. We're going to see this through the pages of the, the book of Genesis, running even through families. We saw it, of course, in Cain and Abel, but we're going to see it as, as we go through, through the line of Seth and through the, the line of Cain. And we'll, we'll see it with Abraham and the, the Ur of the Chaldees and the pagan city around him. We'll see it with Isaac and, and, and Jacob and Jacob and Esau. And, and we'll see it with Joseph and his brothers. We're going to continue to see the growth, as it were, of this lineage. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And one of the ways in which the genealogies is they are scattered from... Uh, Genesis chapter 4 all the way to Genesis 46 at intervals throughout 
the whole book of Genesis is that it's a kind of literary seam. If the book of Genesis is a woven cloth, then the genealogies are a literary seam. We've come to the end of the first of the patriarchs, Adam, the representative of the human race. We've seen his children born. We've seen some of the devastation and the destruction that's come from the fall. And now we've seen God's appointed seed, Seth, that's been given. And we're given its, its lineage, this growth of the godly seed. But it leads us up to the next stretch of material in the book of Genesis, which is, beginning in Genesis 6, the story of Noah. Which is why the genealogy ends with Noah. It's trying to tell you, how did we get to Noah? How do we get there? Well, we get there through the line, through the successive generations, through the begats, if you're a reader of the King James. Through the begats. And as soon as it gets to the new patriarch, another stretch of material will come. And guess what? At the end of that material in Genesis chapter 11, as we wrap up the story of Noah, guess what we'll get again? Another genealogy. And guess who will be at the end of that genealogy? Abraham. And guess what we'll see then? Another stretch of material. The whole book of Genesis is organized that way. So when you come to a genealogy, you know you're coming to an end of a matter and the beginning of a new matter. Which is why we've called this series, series New Beginnings. In one sense, the book of Genesis is telling you that over and over and over again, God begins again with each and every patriarch. The promises remain the same. The steadfastness of the Lord's faithfulness and His grace remain the same. But new visions, new purposes, new directions, new developments unfold as the promises of God mature through the godly seed that unfold through the book of Genesis. Now time would fail us, as you might imagine, to go through these names individually, discuss them, reflect on them all. And so the best thing for us to do is we address at least Genesis 5 and seek to get to those mysterious verses of Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 8, is to ask the question, what is the Lord teaching us in genealogies? Why are they deserving of our time and attention? And I want you to see four things with regards to the purposes of genealogy and as we see it unfolded here in Genesis chapter 5. And the first is this. Genealogies teach us that God loves His people individually. That God loves His people individually. You've probably heard the old Albert Einstein quote, I love humanity, it's just people I can't stand. To stand at a distance and talk about our deep love for people in a general and unmoved kind of way is something that's quite easy to do, but loving your next door neighbor specifically it's something quite complicated and difficult. God doesn't just love His people in a generally distant kind of way. In a keep your distance, I'll love you from afar and blow you kisses kind of way. God loves His people individually. We're told that He's intimately acquainted with all of our ways. We're told that He knows the numbers of hair on our head, even as mine are becoming fewer these days. He knows them. He, he knows, as this text teaches us, our, our names. 
He knows our, our date of birth. He knows how long we've lived. He's appointed the times and the eras and the parameters and the regions in which we live. There is nothing about our lives that is outside the scope of God's loving care. He loves us individually. In the book of Revelation, we're told that there is a kind of genealogy that awaits us at the great judgment. It's called the book of life. Or the Lamb's book of life, as it's sometimes described. Your name, if you are in Christ, is written in that book. God keeps record of who you are. He knows you and he loves you. And he's gone to prepare a place, not generally for a whole bunch of people, but for you specifically. And he takes time in the holiness of his word to instruct us that who's really important is not just the Noah's or the Abraham's or the Moses or the David's or the Kenan's, the Methuselah's, the Enosh's. The names that we don't know a lot about are the names that God inscribes alongside the big names. Of the Bible. And in fact, as we go through the pages of the Bible and we look at the genealogies, we're struck by the fact that there's a lot more that we don't know than that we do know about the names that are inscribed within these genealogies, which teach us a second very important thing about genealogies. And that is that God prizes ordinary faithfulness. God prizes ordinary faithfulness. I was struck in reading this week of commentators on these various names trying as best as they can to cobble together tradition and historical um, evidence regarding these names. And, and we just don't know a lot. We just don't know a lot about them. Ordinary lives, faithful lives, people who were born in relative obscurity, who lived in relative obscurity, who gave birth to children, who raised them in the faith, who died at, as we can see, a very old age. And the purpose of way, the way in which they are remembered is by being a part of the line. You know, the school boards they served on are not listed here. The business degrees that they have and the dollar figures in their bank accounts and the neighborhoods in which they, they lived and the accomplishments uh, by the renownness of the world, not listed here. You know what's interesting to the Bible? You know what's interesting to God? They're in the line of the godly seed. They're in the line of the godly seed. How often do we want to do something big for God? How often are we consumed with doing something significant, making a mark, being remembered for having done something great in the kingdom of God? There's nothing wrong, of course, to do something big in the kingdom of God, for God to use you in a significant, demonstrative way as he uses Noah, as we'll see in just a few verses from now. But how often does, does that desire come more from a fleshly place than a godly place? How often is the doing something great for God more about us doing something great to be remembered for doing that greatness? Side by side with the, 
godly service that we often are inclined towards is selfish ambition. I've always been struck by Nicholas Zinzendorf, a Moravian pastor in the 1700s who knew this temptation all too well. In training up missionaries, he's been quoted as saying, Your call is to preach the gospel and to die forgotten. That's your call. To preach the gospel and to die forgotten. Now, if something in you kind of cringes, as it does in me, to hear those words, die forgotten, let's nuance that for just a minute. It's not that you die forgotten as much as the people whom sometimes we wish to remember us, like history, the generations ahead, to be read about, to be talked about, to become the heroes of those who will come after us that we won't get a chance to see, that we will live on, the sense of our legacy. Maybe forgotten in that sense, but remembered most importantly by God. Remembered in the investment that was given and passed on through children in the lives of discipleship and whom you were, you were touched. And Neil Postman has said that children are the messengers that we send to an age in which we will not live. That the generation of the unfolding of what is to come may be the great impact that you have. It may not be remembered by anyone this side of the rainbow, so to speak. But it will be remembered for all eternity before the presence of God. For nothing done in simple fidelity to the Lord is ever wasted or lost. We don't live to be remembered, but if we live for God, He will ensure that the memory of His work will remain. The third thing we learn from genealogies is that it teaches us that the wages of sin really is death. One of the things that should stick out to this, in this passage is how often we read those words, and he died. We're struck most of all by how old everybody is. Seven, eight, and nine hundred years of age, these pre-flood links of time, where clearly the fall has not taken root in the depth of the decay that you and I experience today, where lives are shortened in such a great manner as we see in Genesis chapter 6, that man's age will be no more than 120 years. This is described leading up to the fall. And later the same Moses will write in Psalm 90 that our ages will be typically 70 if due to strength, 80. It's not to acknowledge simply that fact, but to acknowledge the greater fact. And what would have been shocking to this generation, Genesis 5 and Genesis 6, is not the old age. That would have been typical. But that they died. And they died is to remind us of the fact that we are not as it is that we are supposed to be. Even the godly line of Seth, this line of faithfulness is a line that can't stay alive on its own. It's a line that will die out generation upon generation. And then unless God preserves it and brings forth a godly seed in faith through the next generation... We're only one generation, as it were, away from seeing the complete loss, the preservation of that godly seed. 
Or as Clandish wrote it, each death of a saint, another hour of the world's day of grace is gone. As a patriarch after patriarch is announced dead here in Genesis 5, there is a new alarm that is rung, each leaving his dying testimony to the guilty world. One of the things that genealogy teaches us is that we are to be a people who number our days. We are a people who number our days. We live in a time period that defies thinking in mortality. And that is in striving, whether it be through medical manipulation or through diet and workout programs or whatever it would be, to somehow cheat death. To somehow escape the fact that all of us are a diagnosis away from dying. And sooner or later... Such will be us in the midst of a genealogy. And he died. And she died. The scripture tells us that wisdom comes from pondering the day of our death. How often do you pause and simply remind yourself that you are on the way to the grave? If you did that, I will guarantee you something will happen. It will awaken you. It will shake you. You begin to ask a second question. What am I doing with my life? With the few days that the Lord has given me, how I am stewarding them and investing them within life. Contrary to popular belief, it is not a morbid thought. It is a clarifying thought. It helps to put into perspective that which is valuable in the midst of life. How many people have you been to and visited in the hospital on their deathbed as they're breathing their last who don't have clarity and oftentimes sadly regret over the fact that so much time and attention were given to the things that weren't eternal? Genealogies, as we go through them, they teach us these incredible lessons. And one of the lessons I think maybe most profound in this genealogy is the fact that it teaches us not merely about the wages of sin is death, not merely about God loving us individually, not merely about the faithfulness of ordinary life, but it teaches us in the midst of this genealogy that we have the hope of resurrection and salvation. That the last word is not, and he died, and she died, on your life or on my life. Now, I want to stop, and I want to pan real quickly before I get there, to Genesis chapter 6, just to set the stage. This genealogy and the age of Seth leading up to the time of Noah was a dark period in human history. You get that from the opening of Genesis chapter 6 where we begin to read what must be one of the most mysterious passages in all of the scripture that these sons of God begin to see that the daughters of men were attractive. And they begin to engage maritally with these Daughters of men and children were born and it appears, if we read at the surface level of the text, a race of people, the Nephilim, were created, sometimes referred to as the giants, referred to as that in Numbers chapter 13, for instance. It's a dark period. It's being described here in the midst of this genealogy, this thread, this seed of faithfulness from one generation to the other. I want you to see it's not a widespread, it's a remnant. It's a faithful remnant. 
that the Lord is preserving through his sovereign power. Do you see the recognition is, it's important that we hear this, this is not that some came from really bad DNA and others came from really good DNA. Seth was born with the right stuff and thus he had the right lineage and and Cain was not born with the right stuff. And he didn't have the right lineage. No, no, no. This is a spiritual description. The line of Seth is not this holy bloodline, this untainted, sinless line. This is a sinful line whom God, through his grace, has given to them the gift of faith to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the promise of his redemption. They didn't know Christ. But they knew the promise of Christ, Genesis 3.15. And they looked, as it were, through the ages, trusting in the Lord to provide for that salvation. And they worshipped him in fear and in the admonition and instruction and obedience of his word. This is a spiritual lineage. Now what we see, I think, happening here in Genesis chapter 6 is not specifically angels, as is sometimes described. Angels who have, who have come down and who are now intermarrying with the, the daughters of men. The, the reason that's a very common interpretation of Genesis chapter 6 is that phrase, the sons of God, is always used in the Old Testament in the plural to refer to angels. And so many commentators look back at this and they go, well because of that we must take that overwhelming evidence, we must apply it here. And what we're seeing is angels... More properly, fallen angels, demons, uh, like the serpent, and filtering into the culture, cohabitating with women, taking them as wives, and creating a giant race known as the Nephilim. It's possible to get that from this text. But when you begin to look at the New Testament and you read Matthew 20, for instance, and Jesus tells us that angels don't marry and don't procreate we have no evidence of gender in angels as we go through the pages of scripture or of there being an institution of marriage or the ability of cohabitating being something that angels can can do none of that is displayed in the scripture we have to pause what's going on in this text Uh, could it be that these are godly seth lineage men sons of god Who have now all of a sudden looked over the fence and seen some very beautiful Canaanite women. And decided to take as many of them as possible. And create a harem as it were. It's possible. But I think probably the best way to understand this is not merely in human terms. Nor merely in angelic terms. But a combination of the spiritualness that's trying to be communicated in this passage. We know for certain that the serpent, in Genesis chapter 3, took on the form of or inhabited the reality of a livestock. The serpent, this most crafty beast of the field, we're told in Genesis chapter 3. The evil one, Lucifer from of old, who who had concocted that war in heaven to try to take over God had come down to earth and had taken into or possessed, we might say, the very form of a serpent in order to tempt Eve. We know that demon possession and oppression 
and influence upon men is commonplace throughout the Old and the New Testament. Jesus himself, as he goes to free the garrison demoniac in the Gospel of Luke, we're told that there's a legion of demons inside of him. And we also know that the demons long to be in hosts, to be in control of the vessel in which they were found. And so what did they cry out to Jesus? Jesus, don't throw us into the, to, to the judgment. Give us over to the pigs, right? And he gives them over to the pigs and 2,000 pigs run down into the water and get drowned. What does it teach us about the nature of fallen demonic spirituality? It teaches us this. They long for power. They long for control. They long in, in a lust for the lust of the flesh, selfishness for their own desires. They want to be in a host. They long to have influence. What was serp the serpent's goal in Genesis chapter 3 was to bring down creation into the perversity. Since he couldn't quite get it, God, he wanted to do the very best next thing, which was to destroy the thing God loved and made, creation itself. As we begin to see the complexity of what's going on here, it seems almost inescapable to me in faithfulness to the text that we have here fallen angels actively involved within the possession and the oppression of men. Angels who are now seeking, as it were, fallen angels to spread a serpentine seed. Drawn to the women. Longing to have many children. Can you imagine how many children you could have if you lived 900 years and you had 900 women? A lot of children. That's a lot of serpent seed. What were the days like? We're told here in this passage. Every thought of the heart of man was only evil continually. It's a darkness that is utterly profound. We don't see a more haunting expression in the scripture regarding the darkness of the heart of humankind. God says there has been such oppression, such control, such darkness, that the only response of God here in this passage is utter judgment. As he looks out like a father towards creation and grieves. Because what he sees is his son. The son in whom, if you can be, in a moment, be in the position of a father and a mother. Seeing your child whom you birthed. Whom you nursed. Whom you raised. Whom you saw smile for the first time and take their first steps. Whom you saw baptized and give an early profession of faith. Whom you came to communion with and worshipped with week after week. Then utterly leave the faith. That's the spirit of God in this passage. He created Adam. He created us image, our, in His image to be upright, to walk in accordance to His character, that godliness would ensue, that fruitfulness and multiplication and subduing of the earth would happen. And what's happened is multiplication and fruitfulness and chaos has ensued. Utter destruction has taken place. The fall has begun to destroy the world. So much so that we now have a race of tyrants, these Nephilim, Born of this incestuous spiritual darkness that is beginning to, beginning to take over the world. In the midst of this passage and in the midst of this darkness. We see God in the genealogy at the end of this passage. Preserving a glimmer of light. 
preserving a glimmer of light. In the line of Seth, we see two names that particularly stick out. And let me just give you a word to the wise. When you're reading your geologies, notice I didn't say if. When you're reading your genealogies, something to pay attention to. When the genealogy breaks in its pattern, dial in. There's a pattern here in this genealogy, but it breaks twice. It breaks with Enoch. We're told that Enoch walked with God. He's the only one that's described in the genealogy like that. And he's the only one in whom we don't hear the words, and he died. But instead, he walked with God, and we're told that he was not before the Lord took him. The indication in the text, in the line of Seth, in this godly seed of a faithful man, is that like Elijah, who would come after him, that the Lord took him home early, in body, without death. I'd love to know the details. To be a fly on the wall of that experience. The scripture is tantalizingly simple and obscure in the way that it speaks to us here. It simply shows us that there was a man who walked with God. And he walked with God so closely that the Lord even took him home early to be in communion with him. And then at the end we're told with Lamech. Now, if you were here last week, this is not the Lamech of the Canaan line. This is another Lamech. Different Lamech. This Lamech is in contrast to the Canaanite Lamech. You remember him? He was the vengeance field Lamech. The one who says, I killed a man, a young man whom I slaughtered. My vengeance will be 70 times 7. This man was known for revenge. But notice what this Lamech is known for. He's known for a longing for relief. The child that he is to have is Noah, whose name means rest. He longs for rest. That's the last thing the world has at the moment of Lamech's life. It's in chaos, but he longs for the seventh day of creation. When everything was complete and everything was good. And you know what he says about Noah? Noah will be the gift that will bring to us relief. That word relief is the concept of rest. He will bring to us rest. And won't Noah be, as it were, a second Adam figure? Isn't that what he's going to become? A place at which the Lord will completely, through the judgment of the flood, rid the world of this evil seed, this destructive seed. And through Noah, ultimately give to the world once again rest and become for us, as it were, a second mankind through the very lineage of Noah. Isn't that the picture here that's in the text? That's the picture that's given to us. This hope for resurrection and this hope for rest. In the midst of the chaos of the darkness of this world. Now if there is any analogy that we can draw from Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 6 is this. In the midst of a world that's swirling with the perversion of marriage. And sexual promiscuity. In a world that's given to violence. Are you, do you have headlines running through your mind? In a world where it seems like things are coming apart at the seams, God preserves a Noah. He gives to us a Lamech. He gives to us an Enoch. A remnant of the faithful passed down from generation to generation in whom he makes clear in 6.8 is not because they are awesome people. He says of Noah that he found favor 
in the sight of God. That word favor is the Hebrew word for grace. Grace. Meaning to say God in his kindness set his love upon Noah. And plucked him as a brand from the fire. And decided with Noah to bring forth the spawning of a continuation of the godly seed through the line of Seth. And as we talked about last week, we recognize that this godly seed doesn't end in the Old Testament. But it goes right up into Luke and right up into Matthew through the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, if I may put it this way was completely possessed by the Spirit, but of a different kind of Spirit. You see, we need to be possessed by the Spirit. But we must test the spirits of whom it is that we would be possessed by. The Lord Jesus came as the Son of God, wrapped in human flesh for the producing of a godly seed. That's why He came. That's who he is. The sons of God in this passage, fallen angels, procreating with a harem of women in order to produce an ungodly seed. Jesus coming as the Son of God, the Holy One, wrapped in human flesh, not to produce seed of his own through a human marriage, but through love in the gospel to produce you and me, a godly seed that would be by faith. That would be by faith. It ultimately leads us to the place that you and I are possessed. Because you know what we're described as? Paul in 1 Corinthians. Paul in Romans. Possessed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You see, this passage in some ways is teaching us you're going to be possessed by one seed or the other. You're going to be possessed by one spirit or the other. Test the spirits. Pursue the face of Christ. Receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God would want nothing more today than for you to know the fresh experience of the indwelling and the power of the active work of the Holy Spirit. We want to be animated not by the demonic spirits, not through false teaching and violence and sexual promiscuity, but through faithfulness, walking in line of the line of Seth. With the seed and the power of the Holy Spirit given to us. Raising our children. Going to work faithfully. Sharing the gospel. Talking to our neighbors. Giving to mercy. Extending our love to those who are in need. To the poor. Wanting in every way possible. To see the godly seed continue to spread. Brothers and sisters in Christ. We learn so much from the word of God. We learn so much from the Word of God. Don't be neglectful of the obscure passages. Don't stop short of the difficult names. By God's grace, submit yourself to them and begin to go on the adventure of mining the gold found in the genealogy. Whereas God teaches you not just the wages of sin is death, but He teaches you the very hope of resurrection and the hope of future rest that comes in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father in heaven, we ask for that. We ask for that kind of illumination and that kind of light today by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would give to us insight into your word and we would find that word more believable 
than anything the world would have to offer. We ask for your change to be brought into our lives, that you would stir up now the Holy Spirit who indwells within us, and that we would be a people who are animated, captivated by, mobilized in the power of your Spirit attending to the truth. Come now and lead us and guide us as we seek to be living sacrifices acceptable in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.